they, they'll throw themselves in front of a speeding bus to be a success, but you ask yeah. them to define it and they can't readily give you a definition of it. If you're a creative person, if you're a baker, a dancer, a photographer, a screenwriter, an actor, a comedian, a podcaster, and you want to figure out how to make a living doing what you love, this is the show. This is the show don't keep your day job. My name is Kathy Heller and I'm a singer-songwriter. I make a living doing what I love and I want that for you. This is the show that's gonna help you do that and give you not only inspiration, but some real life strategies. This is gonna help you figure out how to take your creative passion and turn it into a profit. Thanks to ShipStation for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. Try ShipStation free for 30 days and get an additional month free only if you use my promo code DREAMJOB. Remember, free for 30 days and get an additional month free only if you use my promo code DREAMJOB. Thanks to Wonderbly for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. Go to www.wonderbly.com and enter your little one's name for a full free preview of their story. You can enter promo code DREAMJOB at checkout to get 15% off your order. Just visit wonderbly.com today. Thanks to Elysium.com for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job, a daily supplement designed to support long-term health at the cellular level. It's the one daily supplement your cells need. Right now, Elysium is giving my listeners their first month on Basis free. Go to trybasis.com slash dreamjob and take control of your health and learn to live healthier and longer. Use my promo code dreamjob and choose one of their six or 12 month subscriptions. Do what I did and go to trybasis.com slash dreamjob and get your first month of a six or 12 month subscription absolutely free. Just use my code dreamjob. See website for complete details. Hey, it's Kathy Heller. I'm so excited for today's show. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, David Sachs is here today. David Sachs is one of my favorite people in the whole world. He is a writer and producer for TV. He's worked on shows like Third Rock from the Sun, Malcolm in the Middle, and The Simpsons, uh, among many others. And we're going to hear his whole journey today of how he got to do what it is that he's doing. But I don't just love David because he's a successful writer and because he's hilarious and because he's brilliant and smart. I love him because every time I hear him speak, every time um, I go to a lecture that he's doing, every time I have a conversation with him, I feel like my mind opens and I feel like my heart opens. I feel like David is one of the few people in the world who fully speaks from his heart. Like how often do you meet a person like that? How often do you meet somebody who really truly has so much compassion for everyone and really truly like cares and and really is willing to to speak to you like they're your brother? And how often in your life do you meet people who give you such a, a boost, who really lift you up, but also give you clarity? I feel like when I listen to David talk, when I look at the way he sees the world, it reminds me of who I really want to be. It reminds me of my potential. It reminds me that the way he sees the world is a way that I also truly do see the world, but sometimes I get so distracted. Sometimes, you know, it's so easy to get lost in emails. It's so easy to have a week go by and have something where I say to myself, gosh, you know, this week I didn't have much balance. I didn't really get to do a lot of one-on-one time with my kids, or I didn't go hiking, or I didn't see any friends. I basically worked the whole week. Or, you know, you have other weeks where you're like, wow, I allowed myself to get so distracted in leisure time that I didn't do any work. You know, like what I'm saying is, it's just really easy to truly in your heart and truly 
want certain things to happen in your life, to truly want to create a beautiful life, and then to not necessarily have the discipline or the intentionality or the consciousness or to really sit down with a pen and paper, carve out the time, whatever it is. You, you know there's a gap. There's a gap between what is our ideal, you know, what we really want our life to look like, and then there's what our life actually looks like. And that's why I'm so excited that David's here because it's not just about the career, it's about the person. And he is somebody who truly walks the walk and he shines such a massive, huge, sparkly, beautiful light in this world. So I'm so excited, before I forget, I will be in New York next week. So anyone who's in New York or in the surrounding area, come and join us. I'll be speaking at the RL Hotel in Brooklyn. They have something there at the hotel called The Living Stage. Super cool space. And uh, I'm so happy they invited me to come out and speak. And they made the event free. Whoever wants to come, the you can get a ticket. Um, you can come to the Don't Keep Your Day Job Facebook page and um, go to the Eventbrite link that's there. And you guys can click and get a ticket. You still have to sort of get a ticket just to reserve a space, but you don't have to pay for the ticket. But we ask that if you do reserve a space, then you do show up and come because space is limited. So if you go to Eventbrite, and you get a ticket before it sells out, then uh, then you can come on over and join us. So it'll be like an hour. I'll be speaking and then we'll do like another 30 minutes of Q&A and then I'll just be there to have a drink and hang out and get to know you guys. So if you're in the New York area, come on over October 10th. I'll be at the RL Hotel in Brooklyn in Bed-Stuy at the Living Stage. I cannot wait to see you guys and meet you guys in person. Um, so I look forward to seeing you at the Living Stage. And if you want more information about this, come to the Don't Keep It Asia Facebook page and you guys should come come on over there anyway because once a week I do Facebook lives and I come on to talk to you guys and hear what's going on with you and give you some more direct feedback and answer questions and help you brainstorm your ideas. So come on over to the Don't Keep It Digital Facebook page and you can get more information about how to come to this cool free event which will be next week in Brooklyn at the RL Hotel October 10th at 7 p.m. Thanks to ShipStation for supporting our podcast. I strongly recommend ShipStation. I think that it's awesome to be able to make the sort of fulfillment shipping part of your business really, really smooth and easy. I've talked to many people who own Etsy shops or who have sort of, you know, products to sell, and they always say that that part of the business is very sort of time consuming. And I think that ShipStation makes things a lot easier. Whether you're selling online, getting your orders out the door quickly, it can be tough. That's why you need ShipStation.com. It's the fast and easy way to manage and ship your orders all from one place. I'm not surprised that ShipStation is the number one choice of online sellers. With ShipStation, you'll ship more stuff in less time with the best rates available. ShipStation, you can use to create shipping labels for all the top carriers, including UPS, FedEx, USPS, and it makes things really easy to manage from any device, even your cell phone. Right now, if you try ShipStation free, you can get it for 30 days, and then you can get an additional month free only if you use my promo code DREAMJOB. Go to ShipStation.com before you do anything else and click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and you can type in DREAMJOB. That's ShipStation.com, and you can enter promo code DREAMJOB job ship station make ship happen thanks to wonderfully for supporting our podcast wonderfully offers one-of-a-kind personalized products that can be made by you in minutes it's made by you for your child. The book literally doesn't exist until you press the button. They make wonderful gifts for the holidays that are coming up, baby showers, birthdays, or just because. With a variety of titles to choose from, you can find a book suitable for your child zero to nine years old. The books are wonderfully written and filled with hand-drawn illustrations, making them a true keepsake. So I love Wonderfully. It's so fun. I have three little girls, uh, one-year-old, four-year-old, and almost six-year-old, and I just thought this was so much fun. So they have a collection of books, and you can personalize these books. They have the My Golden Ticket book, which was a collaboration with Roald Dahl. It's a personalized book that's fresh with Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory goodies. Um, and, and now any child can be 
personalize and you can insert your child into the Willy Wonka story. So that one's really cool. And so it really is something that feels really personalized to your kid. And in today's world where like all the kids have everything, um, especially when everybody has access to, you know, the internet or TV and, and they've kind of seen it all, uh, Wonderbly is something that really stands out. And I think it makes a really nice gift. So go check it out. Go to www.wonderbly.com, wonderbly.com and enter your little one's name for a full free preview of their story. Enter code DREAMJOB at checkout to get 15% off your order. Visit wonderbly.com today. Thanks to Elysium for supporting our podcast. Elysium is creating a brand new category in healthcare by partnering with scientists and research universities like Harvard, Cambridge, and Oxford to bring scientific advancements in health directly to you. Through rigorous scientific research, Elysium focuses on supporting long-term health. Elysium's mission, live healthier for longer through extraordinary science. So Elysium's Basis is a daily supplement designed to support long-term health at the cellular level. Basis is designed with 25 plus years of aging research by leading scientists. NAD plus supports hundreds of biological functions, including energy production, circadian rhythm regulation, which is your sleep-wake cycle, and DNA maintenance. Right now, Elysium is giving my listeners their first month on Basis for free. Go to trybasis.com slash dreamjob and take control of your health and learn to live healthier and longer. Use my promo code dreamjob and choose one of the six or 12 month subscriptions. Do what I did. Go to trybasis.com slash dreamjob and get your first month of a six or 12 month subscription absolutely free. Just use my code dreamjob and you can see website for complete details. Trybasis.com slash dreamjob. So without further ado, um, let's talk to David and uh, hear his story. So uh, let's welcome David Sachs. David, thank you so much for being here. Awesome. I'm so glad to be here. You have no idea like how much you... Uh, inspire me just that you're walking around in the world um, having gotten the pleasure to hear, hear you speak many times because I live in LA and I've gotten to hear you speak you're just I've had so many people on the show and when I knew that I was going to talk to you my heart was like racing because I really admire you well I, I admire you too and I think you're <laughs> great and I'm just I'm excited that you know maybe something will just happen while we're talking like oh good just the conversation will go into this like very surprising interesting place and yeah. people's hearts will open and like something will just uh, strike you know yeah well I have no doubt that that will happen so um, I know that you have been working in TV for a long time and you've been so successful and not just successful from a career standpoint, but people really love you and you have four kids and we're going to get into all that and how you balance it all and what that really means to you. But I want to go back to the beginning and I want to go back to when you were a kid. Did you have any idea that one day you'd be in Hollywood and be writing and producing shows? Uh, no, I, I grew up in New York City uh, on 79th Street and Broadway, and it's just like L.A. was just a, a thousand like worlds away. Like I, I never imagined that that I would be living out here, and uh, and I actually didn't even have any desire to live out here. So that's <laughs> that's that's the other part of it. But as a kid, I, I was just thinking about this the other day. I was like this weird kid. Like when I was six years old, I I, I remember walking down just the sidewalks of Manhattan, asking my uncle how much various buildings cost. And it's sort of like, so my mind has always been in, in like a very strange place. And and I thought I'd go into government or law or whatever it was. And um, I went to Harvard and I ended up writing for the humor magazine there, The Lampoon. And that just seemed like so much fun. And I thought, wow, could I make a career out of this? And so, so the whole idea that um, I could make a living sort of being creative was like, you know, sort of shocking to me. 
Wow. So when you were a kid, were you known as being a good writer? Were, you, were people spotting that and saying, you're so funny, you're such a good writer. Did you have any idea that you really liked writing or that you were really sort of drawn to it? No, no, not at all. <laughs> really, not at all. I loved watching television, though. I watched hours and hours and hours of television every single day. And, um, you know, looking back on it, to think that I was actually honing my craft, you know, <laughs> I was just sort of like sitting on the floor in the pajamas staring at, you know, these shows is like right. kind of funny in retrospect. But right. um, like, you see, Dad, I'm working. Exactly. I'm really sculpting myself. Um, Who knew? But- who knew? But you said before a small little detail. You said that you went to Harvard. So you clearly were a standout student. Like, did you did you I know? Wasn't, like, I wasn't. I wasn't. I was not a good student. In fact, when when I got into Harvard, like people at my high school, I went to the Bronx High School of Science, which um, if you've never heard of it, it's, it's this specialized um, high school in New York City. It's a public school, but they've graduated. I'm so proud of this, even though I have no part of it whatsoever, but <laughs> they've, they've graduated seven Nobel Prize winners in physics what? at this place. Yeah, it's insane. Oh it's insane. And and when I got into Harvard, the, the student body was so angry at me. They were like, <laughs> you are not a good student. Why, why do they let you in there? This is like not fair. So how did you get in? Well, I had some special sort of like things. So there was some logic to it, but it wasn't based on academics. What was special about it? Well, I was the president of the student body mm-hmm. and there were like 3,600 kids and wow. it was like a UN. I mean, people from like every part of the world. And um, I also was um, kind of like a, a, a public speaking champion. Like I had, I had won all these like competitions and stuff like that. So Wow, that does not surprise me. <laughs> that that was going on then. Yeah. Wow. So there was some logic behind it, but but uh, it, it seemed semi-miraculous when it happened. So at the seed level, what was it then that you loved about public speaking? You know, I gave this speech in um, just my homeroom uh, English class, I guess, it just this a regular English class. And it was led by this man named Mr. Sadako, which I didn't realize that he was sort of this national legend in, in, in this particular particular set of circles in speech and debate. He was just my English teacher. And and he asked the various kids to to give speeches in this particular class. And I was one of them. And afterwards, he came up to me and said, uh, I want you to join the, the speech team. But he was like this, this national figure. But he was just my high school teacher. So I mean, there you see, like, in retrospect, now that I'm just saying it, I'm thinking about it. You know, the way God runs the world is just so amazing. Like, you know, here that could have been anyone giving a, a substantially yeah. better speech anywhere in the entire country, except that my teacher happened to be this guy who had this national profile in speech. So, you know, it's just interesting the way we're being guided, even when we don't realize it. Yeah, that's powerful. I'm glad you said that. It's a great thing to, to be just reflecting on. So you get into Harvard you said it's like kind of a miracle. Everyone's like, why did, why did you get in? Yeah. So, so you, you, you start and you're in Boston. And what are you majoring in? Well, this was kind of like the other kind of weird twist, which was that at the end of my freshman year, I heard these two people talking and, and one says to the other, like, what are you going to like? What are you doing this summer? And yeah. I, I didn't have any summer plans. And the way they were, they, they were taking it so seriously. And I thought, 
oh, am I supposed to have summer plans? Because, you know, they're like, <laughs> you know, like, like I thought just getting into this place was enough. Like I can just sort of kick back at this point. Like, you know, they're talking about banking internships and like, you know, backpacking in Asia and this type of thing. And I, I, I picked up the phone. I called my mom and she said, well, I could talk to the superintendent and you could be the elevator man in our building. And I thought, I said, make the call, you know? So she calls me back and it's like, you got the job. I was like, Yes. And, and, and this oh actually God. turns out to be a giant turning point in my life what? because I felt like, I honestly did not feel like the dumbest guy there I, because that's, I mean, I, I wouldn't go to that, that, that place, but I did feel as though I owed Harvard something, meaning to say that like, I hadn't really read any of the, any of the books that I had been assigned <laughs> in high school. And I thought, you know, I should have read some of these books that I imagine my, my, my classmates have read. And so while I was on the elevator, I decided to try to read as many of the great books as I could. And I remember starting with, um, so since I had to cover so much terrain in such a short period of time, oh my God, and since I'm such a slow reader, I decided I would <laughs> only read books by Nobel Prize winners. So I started with 100 Years of Solitude, and then... And then my, my next book was um, Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, even though I guess that was before the Nobel Prize, but I figured, you know, he would have won one. So <laughs> it's like, but while I'm reading, and by the way, I kept that job as an elevator man all four summers. And when I graduated, I had I had no job interviews. I, I couldn't even fill oh, a resume. It was like, God. it was like Harvard Lampoon elevator man and then like three quarters of a blank page that was my resume and no one oh would God. meet with me you couldn't script this better like it's it, <laughs> it, it sounds like you you wrote this because like to say like and then yeah yeah get me the job in the elevator while the other kids are like gonna be at a, a bank but, so but that was the thing like i was reading these great books interesting. and i was literally swooning over sentences like oh, i mean i'm wow. not i'm not exaggerating i would read a sentence like you know by Fitzgerald again, not a Nobel Prize winner, but you know all these guys are are all, they're <laughs> right. they're classics, so you have right. to read them. And I would literally just put down the book, and and I felt within me like something like a calling, and a sense that I wanted to do this. And you know what did I ended up doing, which is like you know script writing for half hour and comedy and and, and whatnot. You know, it's, it's, it's obviously not literature, but that was the way that was most natural for me to express myself in this way. And, and so, so like well, go, I said, I want you know, to go yeah. back to the Harvard Lampoon. How did yeah, sure. that happen? That's like another weird thing, because it was the beginning of this school year. It was freshman year and it was Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. And huh. I went to services there and someone you know, who I kind of met there. He was a senior at the time. I was a freshman. But we were walking back, you know, from from services. And he said, you know, you should be on the lampoon. He said, I'm on the lampoon and, and you should be on the lampoon. And so he kind of put the seed in my head. And And the funny thing is, is that, you know, again, it's sort of like, there's this like, sort of like heavenly connection to sort of like being guided toward this field that I, I hadn't even considered, you know, in retrospect, you know, because it was coming in the context of, you yeah. know, Rosh Hashanah, which is like, you know, like, why would the lampoon in Rosh Hashanah ever like <laughs> intersect, you know? But again, in retrospect, you see this, I, I feel this sense of having been guided, you know? Wow. So you wrote for the lampoon. I mean, did they just give you that spot right away, like to let you write or? or no, it's really hard to get on. It's like when I 
tried out for it. Like, I think that in that round, like 100 people applied and I think maybe 10 people got on. For people who don't know, can you tell us some of the famous people who have written for the Lampoon? Yeah, I was actually there at the same time with Conan O'Brien. We were sort of like um, wow. there at the same time. And 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 Greg Daniels, which, wow, if, yeah, yeah. you know, The Office and King of the Hill and Parks and Rec and, you know, a million great shows. And so many of the writers of like your absolute favorite comedies and all the rest, and yeah. like all yeah. kind of... Well, no, they, yep. they didn't all go there, but but many did, and it, it it was sort of an amazing sort of like just group of people, and you know none of them really necessarily knew that they wanted to be comedy writers, but they were so sharp that just to keep up in terms of conversation with them, you know whether you knew it or not, you were really honing your craft for being in a writing room later in life. Yeah. Yep. So was there was there a, like a turning point there where you finally wrote something and it got published and people said that's hilarious. Well, you know, at this point in my life, it's like I was pretty kind of like sort of wildly undisciplined, you know, just and I sort of embraced that approach to life, you know, just in terms of just trying to just absorb everything in life. And and in in a way, looking back again, that was sort of like um, my, my spirituality was sort of evolving. And I, I felt like that was the best way to say thank you to God to just to like just like just run full speed in every direction and just try to embrace uh-huh. all of it. And that's so beautiful. But then, you know, as I got on, I, I sort of like honed that and, and but in terms of a turning point, uh, especially with writing, it came when I uh, started writing with a partner. Mm. And that was that was that was huge. And and to to your listeners, I would say that this might be helpful to 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 some of your listeners, just this next part, which yeah. is that I ended up um, partnering with someone who was personality-wise um, was was a fantastic guy, but but kind of like just in terms of personality was kind of my opposite, and he was like a, a very disciplined person, and and I never you know we decided that we wanted to try to try out for jobs in Hollywood together, and I never would have written the material that would have needed to be done, but. I, you know, I could make an appointment to to sort of sit with him at a coffee shop. Yes, and yes. I was Kept enough of a exactly. I was enough of a like a of a of a mensch of a of a you know a upstanding person that if I say I'm going to meet someone at three p.m., I, I'll meet them. Once I sat down with him, then he would sort of guide the process, and and so over a, a period of years, I, I I learned the discipline that's absolutely essential to pursuing a craft like this. Wow. So so you graduated and then you guys started writing together or you were writing together before you graduated? Well, we were we toward the end of my time on the Lampoon, we were sort of co-writing pieces together and then we decided that we wanted to try to make a career out of this and yeah, you know, And so was, you moved out to LA together? Well, we actually got while we were in New York, like, like I said, I I had no job offers on graduating and in fact, <laughs> I I I looked I looked at my resume, and I, like I said, it said Elevator Man, and the building oh, was God. run by um, Kenton Associates. That was a management firm. So yeah. I even toyed with the idea of putting this down um, for the resume. Special intern for Kenton Associates, oh, researching problems in urban transportation. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was, You're that, a good writer, see? <laughs> I figured that, that sort of sounds impressive, but, you know, we're going to realize that means elevator man, like, seconds into this right? interview. So I, it's I didn't funny wanna... because we had uh, Wayne Fetterman on, and he said he worked at Otis Elevator Company. 
Oh yeah, Did you know that? Sure. That's, I think I ran. I, I think my elevator was an Otis <laughs> elevator. Absolutely. That's 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 sort of like the the gold standard in elevators. <laughs> the gold standard for uh, an incubator for great comedy writers, clearly. So you graduate, and you said New York. So the two of you moved to New York. Well, I was living in New York at, at the time, as was he. And okay. um, but after graduating, I went back to my job as an elevator man. <laughs> And wow. and I don't know what I was waiting for. I I was I had actually was in the process of applying to be a page at NBC, which is okay. basically a, a tour guide. Just and then this application or this um some material that we had written for this comedy that had been on HBO at the time uh, called us up and offered us this three week trial period. And so wow. that was kind of like that was that was the big break. And I, I was twenty one at the time and. You know, didn't know anyone in L.A. flying out, you know, and so it was extremely scary and, you know, high pressure and all the rest. And but that's yeah, that's how it all started. And how, how did you like people are listening and people are like, how do you even know about that job to have written something for a show at HBO? Had had that even happened that you would know? Yeah. That so that's sort of like the the frustrating aspect of all this. Um you know, it's just great to know people. And um, so we, there were a couple of writers on The Lampoon who had gotten a job on this show. And um, the, the producer had said, hey, you know, does anyone know anyone? We need to hire some writers. And uh-huh. so we had heard that they were looking for people and, and, and we applied. And, and our material just sat on the producer's desk for like, I think, either weeks or a couple of months or anything like that before uh-huh. they took a look. But when they did, they, they liked it and were willing to give us, you know, um, a shot. Okay, so you, you come out to LA for what you think is like a three-week project, and then what happens? Um, and, and then it turns into decades, <laughs> you know, so it's like, wow, you know, it just... And so you just went from one job to the next to the next? Exactly. And on and on and on? I, yeah, that's, that's how it kind of, how it is out here, you know, it's, um, it's this insane roller coaster of uncertainty and... It, it's not what a lot of people think that sort of like, oh, once you establish your reputation and you're, you've got it made and then you just kind of like coast, you know, till you're ready to retire. So tell us about that. First of all, what was that HBO show? Um, it was called Not Necessarily the News. Yes, I used to watch that. Yeah, it was, it was sort of a beloved show in its time. It won a lot of awards yep. and things like that. Yep, yeah, I love that show. Yeah, that, It I was mean, kind of an early version of The Daily Show. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I mean, it was it was ahead of its time, but it worked. It worked really well in its time. So so you do that. And then let's go back to what you just said. So so if, if you're not just coasting, what do the next few years look like? And then what was the next big milestone? Yeah, you know, you just kind of keep on coming up with new ideas, hopefully, and, you know, writing and just hoping that uh, people will hire you, basically. And you said before that you, you alluded to the fact quite clearly that, that it takes a lot of discipline. At, at this point, what was your, you know, set schedule to be just creating content? Well, we were always writing, you know, it's like if we, my, my partner and I lived together also. So when we weren't on the job, then, then we just go home and, and work on another project. And a lot of times you, you really have to generate your own material and, you know, I, I'll tell you what I, what I think is a, a great um, Jewish teaching that I, I learned from my, my father-in-law of blessed memory. Okay. He said the word mazel, which is a, it's a Hebrew word, and often it's translated as, as luck, like mazel tov, like good luck or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. But mazel, um, 
is is sort of an acrostic, like the the the, the letters stand for words. So this is what he told me. He said that the the first letter stands for that's mem stands for makom, which means place, and the second letter zion stands for zman, which means time, and the third letter is lamid, which stands for lasos, which means to do. So to put it all together in a coherent way, um, it means being at the right place at the right time. But normally speaking, most people just stop at that thought and they say, well, that's that's kind of like destiny. That's lucky. You're wow. at the right place at the right time. But there's a third letter in there, which means to do, which means that it's not enough to be just at the right place at the right time. You then have to actually do something. This is so powerful what you're saying. This is it. I, I mean, you know, I got to tell you something. I gotta, just as long as we're just talking about that, just a funny PS to that teaching, which is that... Um, I read the book Outliers by uh, Malcolm yes, Gladwell. Yes, he talks about this. Yes, and yes, I yes. Realized, I was just thinking like that. after I read it, I realized that, wow, that one teaching kind of captures like basically the, the entire book. Yeah, so yes, I, it does. I, I, I said, oh, I'm going to email this teaching to Malcolm Gladwell, who I don't know. Shut up. And, oh my, and my son at the time was like, You're, you, do you know him? I'm like, no. And he's like, what are you doing? And I, I just turned over the back cover of the book, which was like his the publishing house. I mean, it, it couldn't be m- more circles removed from him, you know? Oh my God. And he's like, you're wasting your time. And I'm like, well, whatever. So I just wrote out the teaching and I sent it to him. And two months later, I get an email back from Malcolm Black- Gladwell, which says, this is fantastic. I love this. Oh, and but, but here's my favorite part of the story is that when he sent me that email, I scrolled down and the whole email trail was still, you know, attached to his email. And you, you saw how one person sent it to the person above them who sent it to the person above them who wow. sent it to the person above them. Wow. And that's kind of like when things work, that's how they work. Like there's like an idea which is just there's a sense of undeniability to it. It's just like it's a it's a great idea. And when when you when you get one of those or when you get that type of reaction from people when you say the idea. You, you have to run with it. You have to take it very seriously yes. and run with it. And maybe it'll work, maybe it won't work. But when it does work, it's it's usually those type of ideas that are the ones, as opposed to, as opposed to the idea that you say and the other person goes, eh, and you go, no, I'm telling you, it's a fantastic idea. <laughs> like There, there right. is a category of success for those type of ideas, those those make the better stories, but they're fewer and far between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much good stuff to unpack here because you said before you said, well, this is where it helps to know people. You said about how your friends from Harvard worked on this HBO show, but you had to have done the the to do part of it so that the work actually had to be good, right? So when the work when the producer finally looked at the stuff that was sitting there that you said for weeks or a couple months, it had to be great. Right, it had to be undeniably great. So totally, that- totally, and that's that's where I think that um, sometimes there's sort of like this sour grapes and perhaps unjustified um, sour grapes kind of thing to it, which is where people go, "Ah, oh, well, you knew someone," but the knowing yeah. someone didn't get me the job. <laughs> That's it right. was it was the there was a lot of work and and other people applied for that job and didn't get it who who had the same that's connection. Right. And That's I'm not right. saying that, God forbid, to brag or, or to sound like a jerk or anything like that. It's just that when, when everything boils down to it, there's this, this moment where the person is either just working their butt off 
or they aren't. And mm-hmm. if if they can say they've actually just tried as hard as they possibly could, then, mm-hmm. you know, stop right there and ask yourself why and ask yourself, do you actually want this as much as you think you do? And um, to what extent are people just using their own laziness as an excuse for lack of success, just to be totally harsh? And, wow. you know, just... Just a person has to assert some sort of um, accountability. And it's, you know, these are these are hard things to hear and hard things to say. And believe me, I say them to myself. You know, I wouldn't say them out loud if I if I didn't hold myself to these standards. But this is sort of like the the unglamorous aspect to trying to make a career in in the arts and and, and even business that 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 um, sort of like people don't like to dwell on. But it is the critical element. So, so speaking of this part, I, I want to know where that really shows up for you, because so far in the story, there has been sort of like a flow and it, we haven't gotten to the part of the story where uh, you're in between jobs and you keep going anyway, and you're working really hard and persevering, even though there's no sense of, of, of when the next thing is coming. So does that happen between then and The Simpsons? And we'll get to that in a second. Were there months where you were grinding out stuff and working really hard and not not sure when it was coming and doing it anyway? Yeah, for sure. I mean, those are that's just kind of the reality of of this road. And if someone wants to make a career out of it, they have to understand that that's that that's kind of what it means to do this for a living over over a career as opposed to just a kind of a short period of time. Yeah, you know, you just have to you know not give up. And just to sit down every single day and treat not having a job as if you do have a job and make the same demands of yourself as though there's a boss with a deadline. And then the thing is, you know, I mean, God is such a huge, you know, element of all of this because it's sort of like sometimes, let's say the project that you're working on, you know, in between just is not something that anyone wants or likes or anything like that. But sometimes just the effort of taking all these things very, very seriously and earnestly yes. opens yes. up gates for another Ooh, opportunity to come that's down. Interesting. Yes, I've seen that in my own life, but I've never articulated it like that. What's a moment where you really had to be like, oh my gosh, okay, well, when you get back on the horse, like what was something, was there like a show you created or was there an attempt to work on a particular show and, and you worked really hard at it and then the door closed? Yeah, I, dozens probably. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> it's like, you know, when you're doing this long enough, it's like there's no shortage of those stories. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yes, 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 yes. And yes. And so what was it in those moments that helped you to keep going? Because that's very, very frustrating and defeating on some level. Well, yeah, I mean, I I remember my father told me, um, and I I think I even saw this in the name of Confucius, um, which is, you know, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. So there, there is, you know, a sense that you actually love the thing and then and that keeps you coming back to it. You know, I think that when it comes to creativity and everything like that, you know, the the sad truth of it is sometimes it's an unrequited love, meaning to say you love it, but, you know, as a productive career, it doesn't love you back. And I think that's, those are kind of the most painful 
situations. And and sometimes there's something like, you know, the, the Van Gogh story where his paintings sell for, I, I don't even know how much at this point. I, I, the, what did the last one sell for? Like close to $200 million or yeah, something like that. Yeah, and, yeah. and he didn't sell a painting in his life, or maybe he sold one painting in his life. So you have, you, you know, you do have rare instances of unrecognized genius and and that's a real thing it's it's not made up it is real it's rare but it's it's real and then and then you have other instances where and i found this with myself also where people have an idea and it's this really weird psychological dynamic that goes on but they don't want to tell anyone their idea and i think that and they sit on it for years and and this weird sort of like relationship develops with the idea, which is that the, the, the person almost gets more satisfaction thinking that it's a great idea and uh, sort of believing yeah. in their own heart that they have this great success than mm-hmm. risking actually putting it in the marketplace and having it rejected. Um, That's so true. I see that all the time. Yeah. yeah. And the weird part of that is the person actually, so you say, oh, well, the person's just a coward or they're just not putting it out there. And that may be part of it. But the interesting aspect of it is that they actually are getting a benefit from not releasing it because in their mm-hmm. heart, there's a part of them that they have bought the idea. So it is a giant success. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they do get this emotional reward from it. Even if the um, career aspect that they feel as though it's leading to remains right. something of a fantasy, you know? Well, I'm curious what you would say about this because it brings me to the next thought. And we get this question a lot. And you're a father, and we'll talk about that also, hopefully, too. And you have four kids, and I'm wondering what you would say to them because the question comes up a lot. People will say, you know, I've been trying, and I feel like I've been trying really hard, but it's not really happening. I'm wondering if you think that people can hone their craft enough to be great, or do you think at a certain point you have to have some self-awareness and just give up and do something else? Well, I don't think it has to be so black and white. I think that at a certain okay. point, if a person has bills to pay and they want to, you know, say get married and raise a family and things like that, there comes that sort of like kind of very bitter sort of moment where they have to say, you know, I have to take a um, a straight job, so to speak, you know, like I'll, I'll be a teacher yeah. or I'll work in a, in a store or whatever it is. But that doesn't mean that they can't continue to work on their, their craft Ooh. in their spare time. Yeah. You know, they don't have to abandon it. And, and I think that there are many, many success stories that, that have come from people who yeah. are working, you know, um, when they get home from work or on weekends or whatever it is. And, and it does yield something. So at a certain point, a person, I think, definitely has to ask themselves kind of like this this kind of larger question about how do I define or how does the individual define success? Yeah. And I know that that this is a very, I think, a very liberating exercise and something that um, very few people do. I, I actually, a friend told me that he, he had, you know, had sort of started down this spiritual path and you know, had a lunch with this, like, you know, really at the time, one of the world's great rabbis. And, and I said, well, what, what was that lunch like? Like, what did he say to you? And he said to me that I have to define my terms, like success. 
And I never stopped thinking about that because if, especially in America and stuff like that, um, if you come up to someone, hey, do you want to be a success? Oh, are you crazy? I want to, ah, more than anything, I want to be a success. Right. What's a success? Uh, and people, they, they'll throw themselves in front of a speeding bus to be a success, but you ask yeah. them to define it and they can't readily give you a definition of it. Hmm. And I think that that's a, a crippling roadblock in people's lives, especially um, people in the creative fields who who more more than almost anyone else need to actually have a working definition for it. And and I would suggest that, you know, one has to take, you know, five steps back and just kind of look at their life. Like, do you want to be a parent? Do you want to be a spouse? What is your relationship with the community? What is your relationship with, with the world, with your parents, with your siblings with you know people who are less privileged or how important is that to you is that like in other words one has to i think you know just get a little bit uh less myopic you know often and and then they might surprise themselves how they actually define success i'll tell you i'll tell you a story when i first came out here there was a, a sitcom which was like I, I won't mention the name of it but anyone who sort of aspired to sort of like you know the more award-winning type comedy shows mm-hmm. and what was right. what was in vogue in terms of comedy at the day. Like this show was sort of like the model of the worst show that you could be on. Like it was just sort of like, oh, like okay. it was Got horrible. It. it was just like horrible. And a friend of mine went to this, like at the Writers Guild, went to this like lecture and a writer from that show, or maybe he was the showrunner, I don't, I don't even know, was speaking. And, and he said, the definition of success is getting home to have dinner with your family at 6 p.m. And I remember when I heard that, I thought, that guy is the biggest hack in the entire world. Like, wow. and but as I've gotten older, I'm like, that guy is like a genius. Well, this is where I, I find you so inspiring because as you were saying that, I know as a kid, when I was, when people said that to me, I took it to mean like, you know, when you were asking those questions, well, do you want to be a parent? Do you want to have a spouse? When people would say those things to me, I took it to mean, oh, okay. So it's either one or the other. And I have three little kids. And before I had my first child, I remember thinking, oh my gosh. So if I want to be responsible and I want to be a true quote unquote success, I should give up all of my artistic pursuits and be a mom and do something more practical. And you have four kids and you know, knock on wood, like a great marriage. And how do you balance all of those things? Well, you know, I remember hearing this story about the the Shinover Rebbe. He was one of the great Hasidic masters. And they, his father was a great Hasidic master. He, his, his name was the Sanzer Rebbe. And they asked mm-hmm. him, they said, what was the most important mitzvah, like bout of heavenly service? Like, what was the most important aspect of that for your father? And he said, like, for my father, the, the biggest mitzvah was whatever he was doing at the time, you know? Oh, so it's sort of sweet. like this sense of, I guess, being present. And, you know, when you're there, be there. So people are, are going to want to know all the bells and whistles. And because I, I know, and you can also go to your IMDb page and figure it out easily. But for the sake of having it in the conversation... You've worked on some really big hits and you've been part of really big projects that everybody talks about and knows about. That first big milestone, what was that first big one? Was it working on The Simpsons? 
Well, that was like the first, I think, you know, great credit. Yeah. So, but, giant, but I had giant. Been, but I had been writing for TV like something like, I don't know, seven years, like seven years oh be- before God. I got that job. So. Okay. And then when you finally, you get there, what was that like? Was it like kind of like, okay, yeah, this is normal. I've been doing this seven years. Or were this was there a moment inside of you, like when you're walking on the set, like there giving me the keys to produce and write this show. Well, this is you know, kind of just in, in fairness, in, in fairness, um, and, and just accuracy, I was, you know, a member of the writing staff and there were like probably about 12 writers or so. And I'll, I'll tell you, it was, I was on fifth and sixth seasons and, and I thought I was catching the, the end of the run of this series, which is, you know, in Shut retrospect, oh like ridiculous. but it was, that was a very hard job. It was a very, very hard job. Like I'm so used to like riffing with people and sort of like, you say something yeah. and I'll say something and you say something and I'll say something and then we'll craft something, you know, over the course of the, you know, the back and forth. And that room, it was like a room full of people who sat in silence and then they would no deliver way. a joke which had a beginning and an end, like a setup and a punchline that was polished. And it oh was my God. a very, very different, at least at that time when I was there, a very different type of writing style than than anything that I was used to and so it was it was hard it was it was it was definitely hard you know and the next major major credit would be malcolm in the middle right uh well probably third rock from the sun oh my god um so yeah third rock from the sun obviously i thought that was after that so how did that happen i i had left the simpsons and and i remember my agent gave me that script it was a pilot script and Oh my God, you were there from the beginning. Yeah, I, I worked with the creators. Bonnie and Terry Turner was like the three of us and we worked really closely. Oh my God. And th- that was such an interesting experience because I, I remember I, I read the script, I fell in love with it. And then it seemed to me like th- this was sort of kind of a bit of a subtle aspect of the series. So it kind of kind of got lost over the seasons. But in the beginning, the idea was that, you know, it's the aliens coming down into these bodies. But the, the body that they come down into doesn't necessarily match who they had been as aliens. Oh, so, so for instance, like um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, you know, who was like the kid on the show, who, you know, became just this giant movie star. Yeah. He, yeah, yeah. he was like just the kid. He was the youngest of the group, but he was the elder statesman in the, you know. Right, right, right. And then, <laughs> and then you know, um, the, the, the woman, the sort of the, the gorgeous woman was the, was the, you know, the battle-scarred warrior had come down as this, you know, woman uh-huh. with, you know, mood swings and all the rest. Yeah. And so that mismatch was was sort of interesting. And I remember when I read it, I thought, wow, that's sort of like the body and the soul because, you know, this, the soul is, you know, this sort of like rarefied kind of like aspect of yeah. God. And then the body is like, has like, you know, all these needs and, you know, very, very physical. And often the the two identities aren't in sync, you know. And I remember thinking yeah, yeah, that, yeah, and yeah. I got a meeting with the creators, and I thought, whatever you do, don't mention that to them. You know what oh, I mean? Like, you God. know, they're just going to think <laughs> you're an idiot, you know? And and I remember, so I, I'm sitting down with Bonnie and Terry Turner, and at a certain point, I opened my mouth, and I, I almost had like this out-of-body experience, because I saw myself sitting on the couch saying these words, and I, I actually, I, I think this is an exact quote I said, I said, I don't know if you realize, but there are theological underpinnings to your work. <laughs> oh my God, you're so cute! It's like, like, oh my God, what an idiot! Like, 
Am I saying the word theology? Uh, yeah. Am I actually not, saying not just that, that but Hollywood? theological underpinnings. underpinnings? Like, where do I think I am? Wrote. Like, like at the Vatican <laughs> or something? Like, you know, like for goodness sakes, you know. And it's like okay, so you and I say the thought. Clearly, I say the thought. You said, and they their they jaws say? dropped. Literally, their jaws dropped, and they said, Bonnie said, "That's exactly what we were trying to do." Shut up. <laughs> so. You never know. I wouldn't have thought they even considered it. I thought that they just kind of did that to be funny. Well, wow. I said, when she said that, I said, no, it's not. <laughs> she said, yes, it is. And I said, no, it's not. And she said, yes, it is. And I said, if that's the case, then I demand to work for you. And they started laughing so hard. And then that was that then turned into the next six years. Oh, my God. And you guys struck gold. I mean, you worked very hard. You had an amazing cast. What was that like to be on the set with John Lithgow? What was that like to be working on this hit show that was not just popular, but great? You know, sometimes things are popular, but they're not great. That was great, popular. It was everything. Well, it was it was great. John Lithgow is is one of the he's he's like the biggest gentleman, like in the sense of someone oh. being genteel in the in the most oh, sort of like nice. grand sense of anyone I've ever worked with. And when he walked on the set, oh. it's like you felt wow, you know, like this. It's sort of like this king has just, you know, sort of graced us with his presence. I mean, he was, you know, he was the definition of class. And so, yeah, that 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 was awesome. And but the show itself, like um, one of my favorite pieces of sort of like just memorabilia over my career is, you know, how uh, they, they have these concert T-shirts where on the back you list all the cities and like all yeah. the venues. Yeah. yeah. And then like sometimes... So we, someone on staff made this t-shirt with all of the time slots that Third Rock had been on, on the back. Oh, that's and, hilarious. And with, you know, with this stencil victory tour, you know, ironically oh, sort of like stamped so over funny. it. But, um, but people saw it. People definitely saw it. I mean, it's like Arrested Development. It's like some shows are so good that some people don't get them. And, <laughs> and then the lucky people do and they go, why, why would that go off the air? That was the best thing ever. Um, yeah. But clear, clearly it, it, had its, it had its very loyal following. And, you know, on that subject, though, which is that um, I did work on a show, and this sort of harkens back slightly to something that you said earlier, just, you know, about sh- something working hard on a project and it just people not getting it. I, I worked on the, um, the first live action Tick, um, which, oh, oh, which yeah, yeah. Barry Sonnenfeld directed. And I was one of the executive producers on that. And um, uh, it was on the Fox network originally. And they had wow. shut it down in production like after the third table read. And they were going to cancel it basically. And they, they said, okay, we're going to write one more check. And for some reason they brought me in. And, and we were able to get it back into production. And that was so clear that we were working on a classic show and that it was just absolutely amazing. And, yeah. and, and, you know, it remains sort of like, you know, in this sort of in the shadows for years and years and years. And, and I'm, I'm so proud that Amazon just brought it back. I'm not connected with the yeah, new there's version. There's a huge billboard of it right by my house it's right all now. Over, all yep. over LA. There are billboards everywhere yep. and bus ads and everything yep. like that. They're really embracing yeah. it. And, you know, that's, yeah. but that's an example of sometimes if, you know, sometimes it takes years and years and years for something to be recognized, but people dug it, you know? How, how can you get a sense if you should like keep being persistent and try to get this script to the right team? Or do you just say like, it's not good. Nobody gets it. 
I'm going to let it go and write something well, else. It, it can be great and no one can get it. You know what I mean? Like the first lesson, actually, I'll tell you the first two lessons that I ever learned as a comedy writer. One, one I learned um, while I was still on the Lampoon, which was that uh, confusion is the enemy of humor. Because if people are trying to figure out what yeah. that joke means, if they're thinking, they're not laughing. Yeah. Yep, so yep. the joke or whatever it is, it has to be clear because, like I say, if you're thinking, you're not laughing. Yep. And the second lesson I learned like day one on my first job and not necessarily the news, which was that, you know, whatever you write down, it's got to make you laugh. And right. because if it doesn't make you laugh, why should it make anyone else laugh? Or why should you have yep. any expectation that it should make anyone else laugh? Yeah. And so just sort of like using that as a jumping off point, I would say that you yourself, whatever you produce, you have to love it. You have to love it, you know? And if you're not loving it, then then there's probably something wrong. Yeah. So after Third Rock, Malcolm in the Middle came, how did Malcolm come to be? Um, Linwood Boomer, who's really one of the great and I think maybe lesser known names, but I think one of the, the great people in, 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 in comedy, especially because comedy took it this big shift from being multicam, which is like, you know, that very brightly yeah. lit kind of thing that, that yeah. everyone's used to, to becoming single camera. And I think that, that Malcolm in the Middle was that first single camera comedy hit. Maybe it's one of the first, but the whole idea of sort of like the that there could be an auteur in, in, in comedy, especially TV half-hour comedy. Like, you didn't really have that concept. And, and Linwood was really an auteur. He really, he just crafted those episodes so brilliantly, you know? And he had been on Third Rock, and, and, and we had met um, Cross Paths on that. So I guess he knew my work, and, and so I got a chance to uh, sort of be a part of Malcolm, but, but toward the end of the run. So, but, uh, but still, it was cool. It was cool to be on the show. What was that experience like? Did you love those actors? Yeah, they were great. Love... And, you know, yeah. you, you, we got to work with Brian Cranston before, um, before Breaking Bad. Yeah. And so, crazy. you know, people were like, wow, Brian Cranston, you know, is like such a good actor. And it was like, yeah, you know, we, we, we knew no one was surprised. <laughs> <We Yeah. knew. laughs> like he was just brilliant, you know. When you're thinking about people at home right now who are listening to you, you know, there's a certain point, you know, people are... They're so inspired. They wish they could have like an ounce of this success. And at some point it just feels like, well, this is him. This is his story. But I don't know if that would ever happen for me. What's your advice? I, w I would say be a good person. Like make your life into art. Like we are all gifted with the most exalted canvas to work with in the world. And that's that's our lives. And And it's sort of like, you don't need anyone's approval to do something like creative and to make another person feel good. And so mm -hmm. I guess what I would suggest is, is like, there are just so many reasons that we'll know or we'll never know, like in terms of, you know, I mentioned it already, but Van Gogh, how could it be that he could be that gifted and it didn't, you know, in his life, it didn't work or, or whatever yeah. it is like, so we, we just don't know in terms of our own life. But there is this aspect that we do have control over, which is our lives themselves and, and how we want to react to things and how we want to approach things. And, and to take that very, very seriously, because when we leave the world, like, you know, no one's 
watching any of these shows that we just mentioned. And as as fancy as they sound, and okay, so maybe on Hulu someone's watching one or another of them, but. But no one cares, right. really. You know, <laughs> I mean, just you know, it's, it's fun <laughs> to get excited about it, and like, hey, and then you were on this, and then you were on that, and wow. But you know, really, honestly, you know, as far as I'm concerned, no one cares. You know, the the question is like, you said you were going to do that thing to that guy. Like, did you do it? Like, what what about that other person who like looks sad over there? You've got a moment. Like, did you smile at them? Did like. These are, I think, the things that actually do last forever, like unlike these other things, you know, and these are the things that we get to that that, that is our real true legacy. And I, I believe that. Honestly, I promise you, I believe that in the deepest way. And I'm so grateful for, believe me, every ounce of, you know, work that I've gotten over the years. I am not to say otherwise. I'm I'm humbled by it I'm, I'm, and everything like that. But But when push comes to shove, we have to just sort of like prioritize what we're doing in this world and 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 I would just say make your life into art it's I'm one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard anyone say and I'm like just taking it in I love the story you told once um David lives in LA and he he does some speaking and I've heard him teaching and I love this story you told once in one of your classes that you might not remember because it was a, such a simple small thing but it's the story about how you went to Krispy Kreme before and you you were on your way to a writer's room and then you got two donuts and you gave one to a homeless person. Do you remember that story? I, I remember it happening, but I, I don't remember what the story aspect was. You basically said that, like, you know, you give yourself this treat sometimes if you know you're going to be at this particular writer's room. You, sometimes you stop at Krispy Kreme because it's near there and you got two donuts. You got like a plain glazed donut and then like, I think, a chocolate donut or chocolate covered, and you usually sit and you usually eat both in the store, but you were rushing. So you took them out and then you were in your car and you you just couldn't help it. You like started eating one of them and you were going to save the other one for later. And you pulled up next to this homeless man and he came over to you and you rolled down the window and you said, would you like a dollar or a donut? (laughs) And you secretly hoped that he wouldn't pick the donut. Right, right. I do remember that, yeah. And and then tell us the rest of the story. I think he said a donut. And I gave him the, the donut that I was saving, you know, for myself. I hope I gave him a dollar also. I don't know, but I don't, I don't remember if that was part of the story. But why do you think you shared that? What was your point? I, I don't know, but, you know, hopefully we're living our lives in a way where whoever we're with, whether it's, you know, someone who's homeless, say, who are just walking by, or, you know, if we're in a big fancy meeting or whatever it is, but that whoever's with us at the time is the most important person in the world at that moment. And that, and that there's no barrier between you and them, you know, no matter if you guys come from just different, you know, parts of, you know, the world. And, and if you are with another person and they, and they are in need, what do you have on you at that moment where you can just give them whatever that is, even if it's a donut or or a dollar or, what what can you give them at that moment to make them that much more whole and just to live with oh that consciousness God, so beautiful that is so exquisite uh it's just such a joy to take in who you are and what you're saying it's just you just feel like a better person for having listened to you speak oh, so thank, thank you. you for that what do you think is the biggest thing in people's way laziness so many of us allow ourselves 
to get distracted and to not go back and do another draft or another draft or sit for another five hours or to to put in that extra round or two rounds or five rounds of work that that will make all the difference. Yeah, that is so powerful because it's so easy, even in this story, to look at you and go, all right, so at a certain point, he coasted from Murphy Brown to third, you know, and you forget that that two millimeter difference that that kind of shows in the craft in the you know I just watched this documentary about Seinfeld about how he like he put in all these hours writing and it shows in his act like he was constantly working on his act he just didn't show up at an open mic and so this needs to be said people don't talk about what's behind the scenes enough people just look at the highlight reel and they go oh okay I guess I just don't have it in me yeah it's like um there, there was a person and they, they were, they did sort of like the rounds on the talk shows and things like that. And, and I heard them speak and, and I, I don't remember who said it, so I'm sorry, but, but they made a very interesting point, which was don't, I'll, I'll explain what I mean in a moment because it might sound a little bit okay. weird when, when I first say it, but don't call your kids smart. And that's not to say that you shouldn't be very loving and supportive and nurturing with them. But this particular word smart can be very dangerous because if, if a child is raised to think that they're smart, at a certain point, they, they make this next connection often, which is that because I'm smart, I don't have to do the work because yeah. I'm just yeah. smart yeah. enough. And, and then also like classes are like elementary school is sort of like rigged to negatively reinforce this, this worst quality, meaning to say that elementary school for a lot of people, especially, you know, people who are quote unquote smart Elementary school is not hard, <laughs> and they will they will get A's and hundreds and things like that just by mm-hmm. paying attention in class or whatever it is. But there comes a certain point in either high school or college or whatever it is where you can't get away with that anymore. And now you yes. haven't built up the personality and the character uh-huh. to put in the hours that are necessary, and then all of a sudden a person drops precipitously and they don't know why because they've been smart all their lives and they've been positively reinforced by their parents and their friends who all called them smart. So when I heard that, I resolved to not call my kids smart, but obviously give them a lot of love, but just to focus on positively enforcing work. Like when they did, and, and I would say to my kids all the time, like, I would rather you get a B and having worked hard than get an A and not having worked. Because when that first cycle of childhood is over, the only muscles that you're going to be able to see are the work muscles, whether those are developed or not, not the smart muscles anymore. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. I mean, Carol Dweck, do you know her book on mindset? This is what's amazing about you. Okay, so Carol Dweck, everyone's talking about her. She did all this research at Stanford and she wrote this book called Mindset about they've done all of this research and they've watched people over, you know, from kindergarten up through when they're, you know, getting jobs and older than that, 20s, 30s. And they find that there's a growth mindset or there's not. And it's the ability to put in the work. It's not the innate IQ. It's that it's exactly what you just said. And so you kind of figured this out, but she's everyone's talking about it now and doing it because she said, don't praise people, uh, reward them for effort and make sure they build that muscle. 
It's exactly what you. Yeah. So, so <laughs> to all the people who are having kids out there and raising their kids, you know, that's that's an important thing. You know, just really positively enforce the the, the work aspect because that's going to position your your child for for the best success. I would say. Okay. So a few quick questions as we're summing up. Um, we talked about this before. And you made a point to talk about how important it is to know, but I didn't ask you, what's your definition of success? What does success mean to you? Well, I would say um, to accomplish whatever I've been put in this world to accomplish. And that's, that's a pretty, yeah, that's, high a, bar. that's a high <laughs> bar because, you know, first of all, how can you know what you're here to accomplish? And it seems like the the finish line keeps on getting pushed forward as you do accomplish more things. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know how I'll ever be able to do that. Um, but right. I, that, that, that's what I would strive for. Striving. That's what I would strive for. Yeah. You keep on striving. And that brings me, actually, I didn't know I was going to ask you this, but people ask this all the time. People write in emails. They ask me this question. They say, how do I even know? what that thing is I'm supposed to be doing. Right. So I would say, I would say, look, look at those things that first of all, you, you love doing the most, um, assuming that they're socially, uh, constructive <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and, and those things that people sort of like remark about you, like, Oh, you're so this, you're so that like, like, uh -huh. and, and ask yourself, like, you know, between those two things, what you enjoy doing the most and what it is that you seem to be the best at and start there, you know, because it's sort of like um, success breeds success. And if you can start from a, a place um, where you feel good about yourself and, and where you can actually sort of like accomplish something, that will be a springboard to self-discovery, I would say. Yeah, that's awesome. For people who are listening right now, and let's say they're inspired because I venture to say that they are, What's the thing, what's one thing that they should start doing? Like it, we, we've talked about this in a very grandiose way and it's very inspiring and it hits you really deeply. And now you're like, okay, what the heck do I do? What do you think for people starting out or even sort of in the middle, but they just haven't gotten there yet? What, what should you be thinking to do? One thing. I would say get a good night's sleep, take a shower, drink a cup of coffee and sit down with a pad of paper and a pen and see what happens get to work awesome so where can people find your work now i'm i'm working on a, a, a new show it's it's called final space and it's going to be on tbs mm -hmm. it's a it's an okay. animated sci-fi uh serialized comedy drama with action it's it's a really cool project i, I really love it and um it's going to be on uh i guess uh first quarter of 2018 and so cool. um i would check that out and then i also give a uh, a weekly podcast where i just kind of talk about the type yeah. of things that we've been talking about and that's called spiritual tools for an outrageous world and um awesome. and that's on itunes and i've heard it and it's fantastic and whenever i have any downtime that's the cool thing about podcasts whether you're in the car or you're shopping or you're working out you can just like get this huge lift. And I really feel when I listen to you, like I just accomplished so much. All I was doing was driving, but I, now I just feel like so productive. I listen to you. So I would highly recommend it. Who's in that show, by the way? Anybody 
that people know in that show that well, you're it was Final created Space? by olin rogers uh-huh. who's like this just this amazing new uh new voice uh on television and a super guy i love working with him and um voices on the show include uh david tennant um who mm-hmm. you know is one of the doctor who's and is like an, an amazing yep. amazing talent and uh Conan O'Brien is one of the producers of the show and he does some voices cool. and uh, yeah, all sorts of, all sorts of fun people. Fred Armisen fun. is amazing on it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, David, you are, I mean, I just, uh, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you to the extent that I feel it, but you're just such an incredible, exquisite, beautiful soul. You are so delightful and profoundly inspiring and like knowing that you walk around the world makes me feel really good about humanity anyone who actually made it through this whole podcast i would just uh thank (laughs) them for for allowing me to just speak from my heart and to share with them and and i wish them the just all the the biggest success in the world and that just that all the work that they do should get to the right people and that just make people smile and laugh or cry or whatever, whatever reaction they're trying to get out of people and that they should just be blessed with lots and lots of success. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh my gosh. That was so much fun. I wish I could talk to you every day. So, so great. Okay. Here are some of the takeaways. Number one, If you're in the right place at the right time, take advantage of it and do something. Number two, it's not just about having connections, you have to do the work. Number three, treat not having a job as if you do have a job. Make the same demands of yourself and take it seriously, other gates might open. Number four, take a step back and ask yourself, what does success mean to me? Number five, it can take years and years for something to be recognized, so you have to keep going. Number six, make your life into art. Number seven, if you're with someone in the moment, treat them like the most important person. Be present. Number eight, success breeds success. Start from a place where you feel good about yourself and where you can actually accomplish something. And number nine, get a good night's sleep, take a shower, drink a cup of coffee, sit down with a pad of paper and a pen and see what happens. And I'd just like to add number 10, if you are inspired by anything that David said, if you felt any sort of like clarity or light bulb, I know that I always feel that way when I listen to David talk. I'm like, oh my gosh, wait, this is who I really want to be. Oh my gosh, I have so much potential in me. I want to make my life into art. Yes. (laughs) So if there's something that he said, if there's something that came up today, then decide right now to do something about it, to, to do one thing that you were inspired to do and make a commitment and do it. In light of that, I hope that this, you know, just sort of is a reminder that you guys are so, so ridiculously special and unique and valuable and the world is waiting to hear and to feast upon whatever it is that you have to share with this world and we've got to get out of our own way. We've got to get, you know, clear and we've got to start taking action and he's right. Like, we can't be lazy. We need to just kind of go for it because... There is no good reason unless we can absolutely say, yes, we we did everything that we could. And um, if we can't say that yet, then there's work to be done and there's great stuff on the other side of that waiting for us. And in the middle, you know, it's like the whole journey is awesome because if you're really here to make your life into art, like you said, if you're really here to sculpt yourself into the most beautiful version of you, the potential you that you were put here to be, then every day, every moment is an opportunity to like 
just enjoy and delight in whoever you're talking to or whatever you're doing and look for the good. And um, in that way, God, it's just like such an incredibly beautiful way to look at everything. And I'm so happy David was here. I'll talk to you guys next week. Special thanks to our executive producer, Tim Street, and producer, Emma Kikuchi. The podcast is a production of Authentic. For more info on advertising in this show, visit AuthenticShows.com. If dreams are made of paper, let's make paper mache. We'll build a world together with our hands. And if hope is made of helium, we'll be like balloons. Float away, wouldn't that be grand? Nothing lasts forever, so we're all a little scared. But we're not giving up that easy, no, we wouldn't dare. Hey, hey, Mr. Sun, don't you set tonight? Tonight, cause we still got a million plans for the day. Like-